transmission. You're listening to EU Watchdog Radio. Welcome to a new episode of EU Watchdog Radio. My name is Hans van Scharen, Media Officer at Corporate Europe Observatory, also known as CEO. And in this new episode of this podcast that reviews EU politics in a critical way, we dive into the issue of Europe as an economical superpower. And this is important, because the European Union has and exercises a lot of power around the world. And even when the European way of doing geopolitics is often described as soft power, the impact of European businesses in other parts of the world, and also in Europe itself, is not so soft. Corporate behavior, also European ones, often lead to human rights violations and destruction of ecosystems. This, despite sometimes eye-watering and expensive publicity campaigns by the very same companies. Think the connections of the meat industry and supermarkets with the destruction in the Amazon forest. Think people in Bangladesh risking their lives in unsafe factories for the European textile industry. Or think farmers in Nigeria who basically lost their farmlands and livelihoods due to operations of fossil fuel company Shell. And of course, these are just a very few examples. So what big European corporations and multinationals are contributing to along their global value chains often is in stark contrast with the so-called values that European politicians love to brag about in public speeches. Remember that the EU once won the Nobel Peace Prize. Of course, the European integration project might have merits for intra-European peace, But looking towards Europe from the other parts of the world, this is much less obvious. So how is it today? How is the EU dealing with issues like environmental justice, social rights and corporate power? And this in a time when globalization is more and more reviewed critically. To answer those questions, I will be talking in this episode to Jill McArdle, Corporate Accountability Campaigner at Friends of the Earth Europe. She will explain what is going on behind the scenes at this very moment with the announced European law that potentially could hold European companies accountable for what their subcontractors are doing in Bangladesh, the Amazon or Nigeria, for example. This law has great potential for victims of wrongdoing by European companies abroad. Jill will explain some juicy tactics and arguments of corporate lobbies against this new law. This corporate lobby was described in a recent report called Off the Hook, published by Corporate Europe Observatory, the European Coalition for Corporate Justice and Friends of the Earth Europe. The new EU law on due diligence is expected for October this year. But first, I will talk to CEO researcher Pia Eberhardt, who uncovered another massive lobby campaign in a new report called Conquering European Courts. And this lobby campaign is about exactly the opposite. Make the EU to propose new legislation that gives more and new legal powers to corporations, which they could use to undermine public interest regulations. 
Analyzing dozens of documents obtained through freedom of information request, Pia reveals in her report how banks like the German Commerzbank, lobby groups like the Association of Large French Companies, Business Europe, as well as corporate lawyers and lobby consultancies are pushing for a new legal regime that would enable industry to bypass national courts when settling disputes with the EU member states. Big Business's key demand is a new EU court for corporations, as well as substantive rights, which could ultimately put governments off regulating in the public interest. Now, this new legislative proposal is expected for November this year. As one lobby group, Eurochambers, the Association of European Chambers of Commerce, made clear, and I quote, Companies are not against measures that protect common interests, that matter to society at large. However, they cannot be detrimental to businesses' investments. Yeah, right. Over to Pia for some real facts. Welcome, Pia. Um, you just uh, published a new research article called Conquering European Courts or Conquering EU Courts. Big business lobbies in secret for new legal privileges in the EU. Can you first, um, in general terms, explain what, what your research is about? What does it reveal? Uh, yes, sure. So it is about a big business lobby campaign which has been going on for the past two, three years, but which hardly anyone knows about. Um, and what big business is lobbying for is new vast legal privileges in the EU legal system. Um, and these legal privileges, if they could get them, could make it much more easy for companies to challenge environmental regulations, consumer protection standards, even labor rights or everything that is good for the public interest, but can sometimes bite into their profits. And what they want is new, yeah, new rights to challenge these kinds of regulations in their own parallel legal system. They even want um, an EU investment court, so you could call it an EU court for corporations only, where they could challenge everything uh, they dislike. Wow. And... If I read it well, the European Commission is going to propose um, legislation or, or going to launch a proposal this autumn. Yes, it's um, the internal market people in the European Commission uh, who are working on it, um, who told me that a proposal will come in autumn. It's not yet clear what will be in the proposal. I mean, I have seen papers that the Commission shared with the member states They contain several options, but they also include some of the varying, very worrying options that the business sector has been lobbying for, like an EU investment court, so an EU court for corporations, and also far new rights, you know, for a business to get, for example, their, their um, expectations to continue profit making um, protected. So um, I was actually quite... Um, surprised i have to say and shocked by how, how open the commission seems to be uh, to some of the proposals coming from the business sector which would really uh, mean a paradigm shift no for how law is being done and interpreted and decided upon in the eu uh, now you mentioned a business lobby could you elaborate a bit on on what kind of businesses are lobbying for this 
Um, yeah, so what I could see from access to information requests, but also from who participated in the public consultation, which the Commission organized on this issue, is really big business, one can say. So large companies, particularly from the financial sector, for example, uh, Commerzbank, so that is uh, Germany's second largest bank, but also some of the um, big financial lobby groups like the European Banking Federation or Deutsches Aktien Institute from Germany, so that's an, a lobby group for, for shareholders, they represent, again, large companies, you know, uh, be it uh, BlackRock or uh, the Bank of America. Business Euro Europe obviously is involved, German industry in is involved, the French Association of Large Companies, so be it uh, L'Oreal or Total. So it's it's really a remarkably big business dominated, I would say, um, this lobby push. Right. And I read in the, in the text um, that, that, that also law, law firms um, are also lobbying for this. And I guess that is linked a bit to, to um, the origin of this uh, sort of covered lobby campaign that is going on, as you, as you said, uh, since a few years. Can you explain what, 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 what kicked this off, this lobby campaign? When, when has this all started? What, what is the, the, uh, the actual reason for it? Well, it started in 2018, and in that year, the European Court of Justice had quite a issued quite a landmark ruling. Um, the court said that international agreements between EU member states that give foreign investors, you know, from these member states that operate in the EU internal market, far-reaching rights. These agreements are called intra-EU bilateral investment treaties. Oof. They allow investors, you know, to sue uh, EU member states outside of their courts and outside of the European Court of Justice in, in private arbitration proceedings. So many people know this phenomenon under the acronym ISDS. It has become very scandalous in Europe, played a huge role in the TTIP debate, etc., um, so the court ruling meant, okay, many of these treaties that give these vast rights to corporations, they have to go. It's 130 treaties. And now we have the business sector crying wolf, you know, knocking on the commission's door saying, oh my God, uh, now these treaties are gone. We have no more protection in the EU internal market. Say when we as a French company or a German company or a Dutch company go, say, to Poland or Hungary or Spain or Sweden, you know, we are just treated very badly there. Uh, we want more protection. And so they are now lobbying since 2018 to basically take the rights that we know from the ISDS regime and from the intra-EU bits into the EU legal order in a way that the European Court of Justice would be happy with. Um, so that's really uh, what the lobby battle is is all about. Right, thanks a lot. But um, I just just would like to roll back the uh, the uh, audio tape a, f a few minutes because you you talked about this landmark ruling of the ECJ in 2018, uh, which is called the Achmea ruling, right? Um, right. Now, what I really don't understand is um, uh, why were there dozens of uh, bilateral trade treaties between European countries uh, since one of the cornerstones of the European Union is the internal market and uh, uh, all the rules and regulations that the European Union has to regulate um, internal trade? 
can you explain in, in, in very general terms why why where do, do, does the, do, do these treaties come from? Sure, the answer is actually not so complicated because these treaties were signed between, say, Western and Eastern European member states, but at a time when the Eastern European member states were not yet member states. You know, so they date back to the 80s, to the 90s. Um, and when the mem when the, the Eastern European states joined the EU, they still existed. But it was really since then that the Commission uh, said, well, they shouldn't exist for exactly the reasons you say. We have ample protection of, of investors in the EU internal market. It's not needed to have ex an extra layer of protection. And it's actually also discriminatory because what it means is that when you are a German investor and you invest, say, in Hungary uh, and your investment is protected under a Germany-Hungary bilateral investment treaties, you have more rights than, say, a Hungarian investor in Hungary. Um, so this is why the Commission for years has been trying to get rid of these treaties. And in the end, the, the, the court, the European Court of Justice, went along with the line of the Commission with a different argument, though. They said, well, these treaties are illegal because when you have a conflict, a dispute, it's decided by three private lawyers and they shouldn't decide these conflicts. They should be decided by proper courts. So that was the, the reasoning of the court. And that's why now, finally, these around 130 uh, agreements, they will have to go. They will be gradually terminated. Right. And so, indeed, you mentioned the, the name of the beast ISDS, that's Investor State Dispute Settlement, if I don't get it wrong. Yeah, um, correct. Thank you. Uh, so ISDS became famous, um, if I recall, mostly when there was a huge public debate, political debate on um, the trade negotiations between Europe and the United States the TTIP agreement, which was then put in the freezer. Um, now, I had understood that ISDS was one of the main objections of, of, of policymakers, unions, uh, civil society, citizens, uh, because you already, you already mentioned it. it. It's a sort of uh, unequal access to, well, to corporate justice because um, small businesses um, for them, it's 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 much less interesting, and it's it's obviously also too expensive, no? Because these um, these cases, the ISDS cases, are very expensive. Um, what I don't really get is why would the Commission now consider um, revamping this concept in Europe itself via via new proposals that they will launch in in, in autumn? What what is what can be the line of thinking there? It's a good question. I think one thing to keep in mind is what the Commission will propose will not be ISDS as we know it. It won't be a private arbitration system because then again, you know, that would be killed by the Court of Justice who has said, mm. well, there is no place uh, for three private lawyers deciding these issues of EU law in the EU internal market. So it will look different, differently. Um, and one proposal that the Commission really is seriously considering is the establishment of a proper court, um, an EU investment court modeled, you know, a little bit along the lines of the Unified Patent Court, 
So you could imagine a system that might be in line uh, with the thinking of the European Court of Justice, but it might still be parallel justice, you know, for corporations. And I think, or to me, it looks a little bit like the Commission, um, while it thought, well, such a parallel system is not needed, investors are well protected in the EU internal market, it has really changed or is changing its position probably because of the massive uh, lobbying, you know, they have been exposed to because they seem at least open, you know, to con consider a, a, a parallel court for corporations as, as one of the options. Um, but yeah, as I said before, I was um, surprised to see in how far they go along, how accommodating they also are to the business sector, you know, I mean... Um, one of the trade unions uh, from Austria, is, who's also worked following this issue with a critical eye, they said, well, we have complained about lack of social protection in the EU internal market for decades and nothing happens. And here come a couple of investors, you know, crying wolf, even though they are amply protected and suck the commission listens and... and and drafts a new legal strategy, you know, to enhance their rights. So that was indeed... Um, yeah, it, it is alarming to see, and I think it's up to really civil society, uh, but also um, parliamentarians, you know, to make sure that the commission, um, you know, does not come up with a, with a legal system that, again, protects uh, corporations more than anyone else in the internal market. We don't really like that. Absolutely. Um now I would like to uh, to 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 round up, uh, get into the real world because uh, for a lot of people listening to this, it might all sound a bit abstract. But you said in your first answer that um, the danger of this kind of um, you know um, privileged uh, juridical um, access is that it might give um, put uh, governments in Europe under pressure when they um, um, when they draft um, new legislation let's say to protect the environment or to uh, put their energy policy more in line with the climate change uh, uh, goals um, is that indeed the case is that what we need to fear and second question to that are there examples of um, of these kind of court cases private arbitrage uh, cases where um, where indeed companies are persecuting governments for these kind of policies well, it is indeed a bit abstract, and I'm yeah, I've I've struggled myself, you know, to um, to make it more concrete. But it is very much about changing the law. Uh, it is about uh, the business wants more rights, so that something that today is considered, you know, um, mere democratic policy by governments to protect the public interest, say a climate law. Um, if it has negative impacts on a foreign investment, can be considered as expropriation, for example, and has to be compensated. Today, in today's legal system, there is quite a lot of room for maneuver for governments to do their job, and rightly so. <laughs> you know, it protects the democratic sovereign. And business really wants to tilt that in their favor so that everything that hampers their profit has to be compensated and with quite a lot of public money. That's what they're that's what they're after. And this is already happening in the world of ISDS, um, where you have completely different legal paradigms and also 
you know, completely different ways of, for example, how you calculate compensations for, for interference with private property rights. And in this crazy world, this is leading to mega awards, you know, in the billions um, that companies would never, ever win in national courts uh, because the courts say, you know, governments have to be able to do their job. Um, they cannot be forced to pay continuously, for example, if they protect the climate. So it is really, it is abstract. It, it would be a legal paradigm shift, as I said, uh, but it's effects could be are relevant for everything you know from consumer protection standards to fighting climate change um, protecting public health basically everything and this in times where the new european commission um had is announced when it started off the battle sh battle uh, flagship sorry flagship uh, policy called the green deal which is all about you know um um in sort of putting investments and and uh, economical activities more in line with um, the uh, boundaries that the climate uh, um, imposes on us and also that the environmental and resource uh, um, that there are limitations to what we can uh, do um, with 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 nature and with the environment and with ecosystems uh, to to to, uh, to 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 produce economically uh, so so all this uh, power that the European Commission um, said it was going to use uh, to achieve the, the goals of the Green Deal could be hampered with these kind of new um, juridical privileges that we that we have been discussing. Yeah, I would say so. On the other hand, it is very clearly a long shot no, by the industry. I mean, when you think, imagine you want to establish a new court in the EU, a new court for corporations, that's not going to be there in autumn 2021. <laughs> it's a long shot. But it's really, um, uh, I mean, its impacts could be substantial. Um, and this is why I really hope, you know, that um, our research helps wake up organized civil society, it's very few actors, you know, a couple of trade unions, a couple of environmental NGOs and one consumer organization from Germany that participated in the debate. For many others, I think there's absolute lack of awareness and the same for the European Parliament. But for once, we're not too late. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> for once, we're early enough to, to stop this mess. And as you said, rightfully, European decision-making processes go very slow. I remember the discussions about the uh, creation of the European Prose Public Prosecutor Office uh, that uh, started this year took, took took many, many, many years. So indeed, maybe there the European slowness uh, it could prove to be a good thing. But um, just just to go back to the to the to the uh, the fact that this is not uh, again this is not an abstract thing um, at all in the sense that there have been court. Could could you give some 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 concrete examples of, of of cases where European governments have been um, pursued or, or even had to pay? Well, I can mention two cases that are ongoing that are mm -hmm. quite interesting because they really show what's at stake. One is a case against Romania uh, over a very controversial gold mine there, which was stopped by Romanian courts in the end because local communities and environmental organizations from Romania appealed to them um, because all kinds of permits, you know, had been handed out to the investor wrongly. And the court mm -hmm. says, you are right, you know, Romanian environmental law was violated in that process 
the courts withdrew the permits and this is why the project is now on hold and Romania is being sued, you know, for billions. I think, uh, what is it, four point something billion um, dollars in compensation. So quite quite a chunk also of the Romanian uh, public money. So this is an ongoing case. By a mining company. So the Romanian state is being uh, prosecuted by a mining company. Exactly, by a mining company called Gabriel Resources. Uh, so that's an ongoing case. Obviously, it's not yet decided. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other cases. You know, Germany has been sued under the regime, you know, for speeding up its nuclear phase out. This is a case that was just settled this year. And as part of the settlement, Germany agreed to pay out, again, a lot of taxpayer money to Swedish company, Vattenfall. Um, so it is it is happening. It's a It's a system that very much you know reaches into um this the regulatory space uh, that governments need to do their job and can be very very um expensive indeed for public budgets next to this talk we will be talking about another uh, research that ceo recently put out together with uh, uh, greenpeace and friends of the earth and others um uh, not greenpeace by the way that was a mistake but um um There is about the uh, also announced due diligence um, uh, legislation that the Commission announced and um, where we can see where this legislation would basically propose how uh, companies can be held accountable for human rights violations um, and and environmental uh, pollution um, somewhere in their in their uh, value chain. And um, but we see in this report, in this research, we saw that um, not only is the proposal being delayed but it might be very much weakened there are uh, concrete um, signals of that um, when you hear this and and you look at your research that you just published what does it tell us about the European uh, discourse about the rule of law and and mm-hmm. and, and justice and 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 corporate power well uh, apparently the rule of law is quite flexible no <laughs> at least when business looks at it um i mean on the one hand they say everything is in order you know we don't need uh more obligations uh it's not needed on the other hand they say oh we we are treated so badly so they they bend uh, as as always they bend the concepts um how they need them and they have you know always fought for more rights and privileges and fought against obligations. Uh, so to some extent, this is not surprising, but it um, it nicely illustrates, um, you know, what, what we really have to change because we have to go in the exact other direction. You know, we need more obligations for some of the richest actors in our society, corporations, and more rights uh, for those um which um, suffer, you know, sometimes from from corporate maldoing, be it here in Europe or elsewhere. So, yeah, we we really have to turn around the ship, um, as always. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, Pia, for your uh, very valuable research. And, um, well, I wish you all the best. Take care. Thank you. Welcome, Jill. Um, recently, Friends of the Earth, together with a few other NGOs, published a report called Off the Hook? Question mark, How Business Lobbies Against Liability for Human Rights and Environmental Abuses. In very general terms, can you explain what this report is about? So the report uh, is about 
a piece of legislation that we are ad have been advocating for and are advocating for at the EU level uh, called Human Rights and Environmental Due Diligence or Corporate Social Governance. It is a very boring sounding uh, legislation, but actually is going to have quite a big impact if it's passed and could really uh, improve the situation for uh, people who are affected by business uh, violating their human rights and harming the environment. And this is a law that will affect people around the world because it is intended to be a supply chain law. And what this means is that um, it will apply, it could apply to EU companies who operate around the world, for example, supermarkets in the EU who buy um, through suppliers, through suppliers, through suppliers, so deep into their supply chain, all the way into the Amazon, they um, are connected to deforestation happening there. Or fashion brands in the EU who are connected through multiple, what we call tiers of suppliers and subcontractors, they are connected to forced labor or other labor rights violations in their supply chains. So this law is intended to hold businesses accountable for those impacts in their supply chains. It would, um, at the very least, it would force them to assess uh, the risks of human rights violations in their supply chains and make them report on those and hold them in some way accountable if, um, if they do find human rights violations and if they don't do anything about that. We want the law to be a strong law that not only has some weak level of accountability in it, but also really um, delivers strong accountability in the form of um, enforcement sanctions on the one hand, so very tough sanctions for companies that break the rules, that don't follow their obligations to do this, and something called liability, which would mean that companies could be held accountable in the courts for these abuses. And this could really change things from the situation now, and it's important that this would be liability that would work transnationally. So um, it would affect something that happens in their supply chain somewhere else in the world. This company could be held accountable in the EU. And if there are victims somewhere else in the world um, that are connected to this company, that they could hold that company accountable in the EU. Uh, because often when they try to get justice, these victims in other countries, uh, it can take a long time or it's very inaccessible. And we believe these, com these companies should be held accountable in their home country for harms that they do anywhere in the world. So we have very high expectations for this for this legislation and we know that it's going to be groundbreaking already in some ways and that it will uh, move from being a voluntary system at the moment which is what we have now with corporate social responsibility of companies which has failed to deliver any justice this would make it mandatory and it would be cross-cutting so not just sector by sector which is also what we have now so these are things we are very supportive of, but also we definitely want to make sure that this law comes with what I said, this liability and this access to justice for victims, because this is really what the entire point of doing a corporate accountability legislation should be about. So this is what civil society wants, and this is what, um, up until now, uh, the commission and the, the commissioner in charge of this, um, Commissioner Reinders, has signaled that he is willing to consider in this law. So things like liability and access to justice as well. But now, as this law progresses, we are starting to see the business lobbies wake up to the reality of what this law could mean for them and to get involved. Right. So our report... 
Sorry to interrupt you, Jill. There, but so that is um, um, you, you. You just sketched the, the the broader context of this law and the proposal that was announced last year by Mr. Reinders, and the report that you brought out um, and, and, and uh, is basically describing the various ways that businesses are lobbying against this proposal. Could, could you could you explain um, what are the main findings? What are the main lobby tactics or the main um, yeah narratives that businesses use to to lobby against this proposal? Sure. So the businesses use a couple of very clever tactics, um, tactics that are not unique to this legislation, but are working quite well here. So on the first hand, they split into two camps, the outwardly hostile camps, so your traditional groups like Business Europe, the other big business lobbies who are, who have been and are very hostile to the idea of any legislation. And they come and say, we don't need this. Voluntary initiatives are fine. Why are you doing this? And yeah, just generally reject the idea of any legislation. And then you have progressive groups such as Amphori or CSR Europe, or um, there's also the AIM brand association who are outwardly very supportive of the idea of legislation and they have a lot of very supportive statements on the need for legislation, on the need for due diligence, on the need to make it mandatory and all of that on the face of it seems very positive. But what we suspect this is, is a tactic to bring them as legitimate stakeholders into the conversation to then propose things that would actually undermine and weaken the law and are, when you dig in, not that different to what the hostile business groups are asking for. And what they do is they use very, after saying they are in support of a law, they then say, but we think the law should be done in a particular way. And at this stage, they use very practical and reasonable sounding terminology uh, to disguise efforts to really weaken or to take out important parts of the law. And I can give you some examples of this. We made something of a glossary of the terminology that we think policymakers and decision makers and citizens should look out for when they listen to these uh, progressive groups. So they talk about uh, pragmatic and feasible legislation, which sounds great. I mean, nobody wants anything that's not pragmatic and that's not feasible. But when you consider what they mean, they often mean, for example, limiting it to what we call tier one suppliers. And that means, as I said earlier, that you have different levels of suppliers in your supply chain. You've got your immediate suppliers and then your subcontractors and suppliers further down the supply chain. So you buy from somebody who buys from somebody else, who contracts from somebody else. And so when you get deep into the supply chain, they say this becomes not feasible. We cannot possibly monitor and assess all of these different suppliers which sounds reasonable, but when you consider that one really important thing, for example, we want to deal with here is deforestation. And that often happens um, very deep in this. It's often at the very upstream, like the really start of the supply chain um, in the Amazon on the ground uh, or forced labor, as I mentioned, where it is the people, the labor in the factories in Bangladesh, 
um, which is several tiers away from the suppliers in Europe. That is where the harm is really happening. And the suppliers, the purchasers in Europe, the EU companies are often the ones in that chain who have all of the power uh, to put a stop to these things. They can use their purchasing power to uh, demand better working conditions, to demand ethical, um, ethical timber. So they can do something about these things um, and they can monitor it, but they, they just don't want to. So they talk about it being unfeasible. Um, more, seri and more seriously, maybe they also talk about not wanting a punitive approach to this legislation. So don't punish us in this legislation is what they're saying. And they talk about wanting rewards and positive incentives. But when you remember that this legislation is about stopping companies from being involved in human rights violations, it's quite shocking that they would then ask for rewards for this. I mean, we don't expect any of the rest of us to get rewarded for not violating the human rights of another person or, or company. So it is surprising and disturbing that they ask for it in this legislation. And this is the flip side to them also saying that what they really don't want to see in this legislation is uh, frivolous claims or legal uncertainty or increased risk of litigation, which again are all complex terms, but they all relate to the idea that if a company is involved in a human rights abuse violation, they can be taken to court by the victims. This is something companies don't like and they certainly don't want to um, improve the situation of victims in this type of legislation. But we know that already victims have a hugely difficult time taking companies to court. Uh, Friends of the Earth, um, our partner in the Netherlands, uh, Friends of the Earth Netherlands, has been involved in a 13-year battle to hold Shell accountable for oil spills in Nigeria that devastated the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And they had a victory earlier this year with four farmers uh, being entitled to partial compensation from Shell. But, and this case was amazing. And we were very happy with this victory, but it took 13 years and Shell was not even found um, wholly liable in the end. The parent company was barely found liable. So it was a huge struggle. It took a very long time. And this is the situation of victims right now. And this is what we want improved in legislation. And this is exactly what companies don't want to see change. They like the status quo, that they can use lots of le uh, legal loopholes and gaps to um, escape justice, to have impunity, to make it very hard for victims. And I would just add that court is, of course, a last resort for victims. Nobody wants to go to court. Um, but it's an essential tool to know, for companies to know that if they break the rules, they can be taken to court. And that is actually something that they've also realized they could use this legislation to get rid of completely. So they also talk uh, Business Europe and the progressive companies have in some way or other uh, often bring up the concept of safe harbor which is to say, if we do the due diligence, if we follow your legislation, um, it should create a safe harbor, which means basically an immunity from liability. If we follow this, if we tick your boxes, we cannot be taken to court. And that would, of course, be the opposite of what we want to achieve with this law.
basically it sounds like this law and and the, the years and years of campaigning by civil society to 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 get policymakers to to come to this is sort of injecting a, a strong dose of justice into a, a very fragmented uh, um, um, a globalized economy um, where where yeah as you describe it with the, the case of of uh, the victims of shell in Nigeria it is virtually impossible uh, for for people to to seek justice so so uh, um, I can imagine that for example uh, you you spoke about Bangladesh uh, this law should make it possible for people uh, in, in in factories in in, uh, in Bangladesh producing um, textile for uh, let's say H&M uh, to basically seek justice if their rights are being violated, right? And uh, this sounds still like a very far away dream in a way. Yes, this law could do that. Uh, it's important to say that, you know, due diligence on its own is not going to do that. So just an obligation on companies to do due diligence will not deliver this access to justice, which is why we insist that the law has to come with many more provisions. Um, they don't necessarily need to be in every single one of them cannot be in this legislation. There's a lot that the EU needs to do on access to justice, but this law should contain some of those provisions. There are issues like I mentioned liability. There's also the burden of proof. So who has to prove what in a court case? Uh, this is a huge obstacle because right now the company does not have to prove anything and it's on the victims to show the link between the harm and what the company did. Um, and to show a lot of other things that they need access to company documents to show and companies don't turn those things over. So this is a huge obstacle that we want to see reformed. Uh, this was a big obstacle in the, the Shell cases because um, the victims could not prove the connection between the parent company and the subsidiary in Nigeria. And this is something that we think should be um, reversed so that it should be assumed that the subsidiary, which is partially owned by the parent and very clearly on the face of it operated and controlled by the parent, um, we should have a presumption of control and that it should be on the company to say, oh, well, here's evidence that actually we don't control this company. Right now, the reverse is true and victims have to, before barely before the case has even started officially, find all this evidence, which is just impossible for them. So we want to see a reversal of that burden of proof and more disclosure of documents in cases. Connected to that, we'd also like to see um, longer time limitations. This was an issue in um, the Rana Plaza case and the Kick case with um, people died uh, thanks to factory fires, uh, but it took so long for the cases to get started that the, the laws in those countries have very short time limitations on when you can bring a case so that by the time everyone got mobilized to have a case, the time limitation was done. And it seems like a very technical point, but it is a huge barrier to justice. These are things that this law needs to begin to address, even if it's not going to be, it's definitely not the end of the story for access to justice improvements in the EU. So in conclusion, um, if I'm not mistaken, this law was supposed to be announced um, this month, June 2021, um, but it was delayed. Can you can you speak a bit about how where we are and what, what, what kind of what kind of behind the scene battles and lobby battles that you uh, uh, have observed? 
Yes, I'd be happy to, uh, because this is really an interesting and important and kind of concerning moment for this legislation. I mentioned earlier that Commissioner Reinders, who is the Commissioner for Justice and Consumers, who was, who was driving this process, we had um, strong expectations from his uh, statements to us and publicly about what this law could be. And we were optimistic that it would contain some of the things that, we, that we've been pushing for and uh, that we need. Now we see that the law is delayed until October. We see that Commissioner Breton has been brought in as the co-lead on the file. Commissioner Breton is the head of DG Grow and unfortunately does not have a great track record in our eyes of being supportive of um, civil society or victims. He is very much an industry allied commissioner who has been driving, for example, the new industry alliances in the commission. We're also seeing that the rest of the College of Commissioners are paying more attention to this file now. And we've seen that uh, Politico last week leaked the Regulatory Scrutiny Board opinion of the legislation. That also sounds very dull and technical, but it's a very key moment in the legislation process where this scrutiny board gives its opinion. And if the opinion is bad, then the uh, the DG who is writing the legislation has to go back and try to re-justify what it's doing or change what it's doing. So they gave a bad opinion, which we were very disturbed by because it said, we don't see that you've shown any evidence for the need to regulate these companies. Where is the evidence that companies aren't doing enough on sustainability? Where is the evidence that voluntary initiatives aren't working? All of this is shocking to us because there is just endless evidence to prove these points on the human rights abuses, on the failure of voluntary initiatives. There is plenty of evidence. Whether or not uh, DG Justice uh, did a good job of showing it to this regulatory scrutiny board, uh, we're quite concerned there with that, with that, and questioning that mm. legislative process now. What's going on there with this, um, with this legislation? And at the same time, the Ger a German law, a German supply chain law, was just passed. Um, I think just over a week ago, and we were very disappointed that that law went from bad to worse, um, mostly thanks to very mobilized business lobbies. It started out last year with some liability uh, provisions. These were removed and in the end, it did not only remove liability, but it explicitly stated that it does not create any new civil liability on companies. This is really disturbing um, and we do not want to see this replicated at the EU level. I'd also mention that the French lobbies seem to be mobilizing as well. Uh, the French have a law on this, the Devoir de Vigilance. It's not a perfect law, but it does have access to courts uh, to prevent harm and to seek remedy for harm, which are two really important, strong things that it contains. It's difficult um, in France, and we have NGOs already taking cases, and we're starting to see the big business lobby who, funnily enough, represents the companies that are being taken to court now in France, are mobilizing to tell the EU not to replicate the provisions in the French law. We've got them saying don't include climate change because Total is um, has to go to court in France to explain why it's not doing enough on climate change. Um, it doesn't want to see um, access to courts for victims 
and uh, we also know that Total is being taken to court for human rights, potential human rights violations in Uganda. And finally, uh, Casino, the big supermarket giant, I mentioned deforestation earlier, they are also going to court because they are accused of um, this, as I mentioned, way deep in the supply chain, they're uh, buying uh, meat uh, from suppliers linked to like hundreds and hundreds of suppliers linked to deforestation of the Amazon. And the French law is actually um, equipped to have a supply chain liability case like that, which is one of its stronger elements. So of course, Casino, Total and AFEP, the lobby that represents them, are all speaking to the EU now and saying, don't, uh, don't do what's in the French law for obvious reasons. So all of that together, and with this delay until October, we are very worried that this is just giving more and more space for these lobbies to pressure the EU to further water down, weaken and gut and gut this law. Well, thank you so much, Jill. That doesn't sound very promising, but um, luckily there is such a thing as civil society to counter lobby um, these um, these developments and to raise awareness of people. And uh, thanks a lot for your research and for your explanations and um, all the best of luck. We've come to the end of this podcast. A special thanks goes out to my guests, Pia Eberhardt and Jill McArdle, for sharing their knowledge with us and for taking action. Also, a big thank you to Mark Baroner and Jan Kallewaert for technical assistance. If you like this podcast and if you value the work of CEO, then please support us by spreading the word in your networks and communities. And thanks a lot for listening. Stay tuned. Stay safe. <laughs>